Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Unpromising beginnings. It is inevitable that a career in medicine will involve seeing death. My journey into familiarity with death began with a still warm body and continued with the necessity of discussing the deaths of patients with their newly bereaved loved ones. It was a long way from talking about dying with people who were themselves dying, a conversation that would have been discouraged by medical wisdom when I was training, but it was an apprenticeship of sorts, and it taught me to listen. In listening, I began to understand patterns, to notice similarities, to appreciate others' views about living and dying. I found myself wondering, fascinated, and I found a sense of direction. I first saw a dead person when I was 18. It was my first term at medical school. He was a man who had died of a heart attack on his way to hospital in an ambulance. The paramedics had attempted to resuscitate him without success, and the emergency department doctor, whom I was shadowing, was called to certify death in the ambulance before the crew took the body to the hospital mortuary. It was a gloomy December evening, and the wet hospital forecourt shone orange in the street lamps. The ambulance interior was startlingly bright in comparison. The dead man was in his forties, broad-chested and wide-browed, eyes closed but eyebrows raised, giving an impression of surprise. The doctor shone a light in his eyes, listened over his chest for heart or breath sounds, he examined a printout of the ECG from the last moments that his heart was beating, then nodded to the crew. They noted the time of this examination as the declared time of death. They disembarked. I was last out. The man was lying on his back, shirt open, ECG pads on his chest, a drip in his right arm. He looked as though he was asleep. He might just wake up at any moment, surely. Perhaps we should shout in his ear. Perhaps we should just give him a vigorous shake. He would surely rouse. Come on, the doctor called back to me. Plenty to do for the living. Leave him for the crew. I hesitated. Perhaps he's made a mistake. If I stand here long enough, I'll see this man take a breath. He doesn't look dead. He can't be dead. Then the doctor noticed my hesitation. He climbed back into the ambulance. First time, eh? Okay, use your stethoscope. Put it over his heart. I fumbled in the pocket of my white coat. Yes, we wore them then. And withdrew the shiny new tool of my trade to be, all the tubing tangled around the earpieces. 
I put the bell of the stethoscope over where the heart should be beating. I could hear the distant voice of one of the crew telling someone he would like sugar in his coffee, but no heart sounds. My observant trainer picked up the end of my stethoscope and rotated it, so that it would pick up noises from the patient and not from the world, and placed it back over the heart. Now there was utter silence. I had never heard silence so solid, nor listened with such focus. And now I noticed that this man looked a little pale. His lips were a deep purple, and his tongue was visible, also dusky. Yes, he is dead. Very newly dead, still working out how to be dead. Thank you, I said to the pale man. We left the ambulance and walked through the orange rain back into A&E. You'll get used to it, said the doctor kindly, before he picked up a new chart and carried on with his evening shift. I was perplexed by the stark simplicity, the lack of ceremony. Our next patient was a child with a sweet stuck up her nose. There were other, less vividly remembered deaths while I was a student, but in the first month after I qualified, I earned the hospital record for the number of death certificates issued. This was simply because I was working on a ward that had a lot of people with incurable illnesses, and not due to any personal responsibility for their deaths, please understand. I quickly became on first-name terms with the bereavement officer, a kindly woman who brought around a book of certificates to be signed by the doctor who had declared the patient dead. In just the same way as I had seen in that ambulance five years earlier, I noted the deaths of 14 people in my first 10 days, or perhaps it was the other way around. The bereavement officer quipped that perhaps I should get an award. What the bereavement officer didn't see, though, was the massive learning curve I was climbing. Each of those certificates was about a person, and each of those people had family members who needed to be told about the death and who wanted to know the reasons their loved one had died. In my first month of clinical practice, I had 20 conversations with bereaved families. I sat with people while they wept or stared blankly into a future they could barely contemplate. I drank cups of tea with sympathy, brewed at sister's instruction with one of the experienced auxiliary nurses and carried on a tray. With a proper cloth, please. Yes, sister. Into sister's office, which was only entered by doctors with sister's personal permission. Bereavement visits were an exception. Permission was assumed. Sometimes I was the second fiddle, listening to a more experienced doctor, talking to families about illness, death, why the drugs hadn't worked, or why an infection had torn the person away just as their leukaemia was responding. The family members nodded bleakly, sipped tea, dripped tears. Sometimes I was the only doctor available if others were in clinics, or it was after hours, and sometimes I brewed the tea with sympathy myself, finding the familiar routine a comfort, noticing the details of the flowery, gilded china cups and saucers that Sister provided for these most special visitors, before taking a deep breath and entering the room to give the worst news in the world. To my surprise, I found these conversations strangely uplifting, Families were rarely totally unprepared. This was a ward for people who had life-threatening illnesses. During these conversations, I would learn so much about the deceased person. 
things I wished I had known while they were alive. Families told stories about their gifts and talents, their kindnesses and interests, their quirks and peculiarities. These conversations were almost always in the present tense. There was a sense of their loved one still being present in some way, perhaps while the body was still tucked in the same bed or was being cared for somewhere else in the hospital. And then they would check themselves, correct the tense, and begin to rehearse their steps into the huge loss that was gradually, terribly, declaring itself. Sometime during my first six months, I had to tell an elderly man that his wife had died. She had died suddenly, and the cardiac arrest team had been called. As is customary, her husband had been telephoned and asked to come as soon as he could, no further details given. I found him standing on the ward, outside her room, looking at the unfamiliar screen across the door and the sign saying, Please do not enter. Please see the nursing staff. The crash team had departed and the nurses were occupied with their drugs round. I asked if I could help and then saw the bewilderment and fear in his eyes. Are you Irene's husband? I asked. He moved his head to say yes, but no sound came out of his mouth. Come with me and let me explain, I said, leading him to sister's office and to yet another of those conversations that change people's lives. I don't remember the detail of the conversation, but I remember becoming aware that, with the death of his wife, this man now had no remaining family. He seemed frail and lost, and I was concerned that he might need support in his bereavement. Had I been more aware then of the wonderful contribution that can be made by GPs and primary care services, I might simply have asked his permission to let his GP know that his beloved wife had just died. But I was inexperienced and in an unexpected situation. I had discovered him outside his wife's room while I was in the middle of administering the midday intravenous antibiotics for the ward. I hadn't prepared myself for a bereavement discussion. As usual, when terminating these sad conversations, I assured him that I would be happy to talk to him again if he found that he had any further questions as time went by. Although I always said this, and I truly meant it, families never did come back for more information. And then I acted on impulse. I gave Irene's fragile-looking husband my name and telephone number on a piece of paper. I had never given out written contact details like this before, and his apparent indifference, as he screwed the scrap of paper into a ball and pocketed it, seemed to indicate that this might not be a helpful contribution. Three months later, I was working at a different hospital, now as a junior on a surgical ward, when I received a phone call from the ward sister of my previous ward, she of the tray with cloth and the gilded china. Did I remember the patient called Irene, she asked. She had had a call from Irene's husband and he was most insistent that he make contact with me. She gave me a number and I called him. Oh, thank you for calling me back, Doctor. It's so nice to hear your voice. He paused and I waited, wondering what question might have occurred to him, hoping I would know enough to answer it. The thing is... He paused again. Well, you were so kind to say I could phone you. 
and I didn't know who else I could tell, but, well, the the thing is, I finally threw Irene's toothbrush out yesterday, and today it isn't in the bathroom, and I really feel she is never coming back. I could hear his voice breaking with emotion, and I remembered his bewildered face back on the ward the morning she died. The lesson was coming home to me. Those bereavement conversations are just the beginning, the start of a process that is going to take a lifetime for people to live alongside in a new way. I wondered how many others would have called had I given them a name and a number in writing. By now I was more aware of the network of care that is available, and I asked Irene's husband for permission to contact his GP. I told him I was honoured that he felt he could call me. I told him that I remembered Irene with such fondness and that I could not begin to imagine his loss. Towards the end of my first year after qualification, I found myself reflecting on the many deaths I had attended in that year. The youngest, a 16-year-old lad with an aggressive and rare bone marrow cancer, the saddest, a young mum whose infertility treatments may have been responsible for her death from breast cancer just before her precious son's fifth birthday, the most musical, an elderly lady who asked the ward sister and me to sing Abide With Me for her and who breathed her last just before we ran out of verses. The longest distance, the homeless man who was reunited with his family and transported the length of England over two days in an ambulance to die in a hospice near his parents' home, and the one that got away, my first cardiac arrest call. A middle-aged man who was post-op and stopped breathing, but who responded to our ministrations and walked out of the hospital a well man a week later. This is when I noticed the pattern of dealing with dying. I am fascinated by the conundrum of death, by the ineffable change from alive to no longer alive, by the dignity with which the seriously ill can approach their deaths, by the challenge to be honest yet kind in discussing illness and the possibility of never getting better, by the moments of common humanity at the bedsides of the dying, when I realise that it is a rare privilege to be present and to serve those who are approaching their unmaking. I was discovering that I was not afraid of death, rather I was in awe of it and of its impact on our lives. What would happen if we ever found a cure for death? Immortality seems in many ways an uninviting option. It is the fact that every day counts us down that makes each one such a gift. There are only two days with fewer than 24 hours in each lifetime, sitting like bookends astride our lives. One is celebrated every year, yet it is the other that makes us see living as precious. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.